Well, good morning, church. One of our goals in worship on a Sunday morning is what the psalmist said, that God has exalted two things, his name and his word. His name and his word. And that's what we set out to do as we gather together to worship, which we continue in right now by looking at his word. Well, after a trial had been going on for one or two weeks, the defendant asked to approach the judge's bench. The judge granted his request and asked the defendant, what is it that you want to say? And the defendant replied, well, your honor, I would like to change my plea from not guilty to guilty. The judge angrily banged his fist on the bench and said, if you're guilty, why didn't you say that in the first place and save this court a lot of money, time, and inconvenience? The defendant looked up wide-eyed and replied, well, when the trial began, I thought I was innocent, but that was before I heard all the evidence against me. (laughs) It's hard to argue against evidence. Oh, the power of persuasion. And that introduces us to our passage this morning in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As we see a church built on the power of persuasion, but it's persuasion based on evidence. Acts chapter 17. And this chapter here also serves as an introduction to our series that's going to begin next week on vital signs from 1 Thessalonians. And so Acts 17 really gives us necessary background to the birth of this church in Thessalonica, which was the capital city of Macedonia. And Paul and Silas and likely also Timothy and probably Luke, landed in this city of about 200,000 people. And in Acts chapter 17, we see the true story behind the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So that's why I'm starting here. And and our headings this morning is simply this. He, He reasons with them, meaning Paul. He reasons with them. He establishes them, the church, and he writes to them. He reasons with them, he establishes them, and he writes to them. So first of all, let's look at he reasons with him. And and I'll I'll say this up front, Um, I'm going to spend most of my time on this first point this morning. I just say that so, you know, I get through one first point, you're not all anxious, you know, going, oh, wow, we're going to be here a while, if it's equal each one. It's not, all right? So I want you to settle in, relax, most of it's going to be here. All right, verse 1, Acts 17. Follow along. When they, meaning Paul, Silas, probably Timothy and Luke, they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, Paul and Silas, just for kind of some context here, are coming off of a grueling time in Philippi. That's Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, uh, Paul and his team, they were beaten, they were stripped, they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison for simply proclaiming the name of Jesus. 
Now, of course, you may, may remember, it was in that prison where the, they led the jailer and his family to Christ, right? And then, and then they were eventually released from prison and said, get out of here, just, just leave. And so they do. And Paul and his team, they walk roughly 100 miles, maybe a little less, over two to three days to arrive in Thessalonica. And you would think that the first thing they would do after what had just happened in Acts 16, and this long walk, is they check into Marriott and relax, right? Maybe take a vacation. No, no. The first thing they do is they find a Jewish synagogue. Why? Verse 2 answers that. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This is Jesus, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, is the Messiah, he said. And so it was Paul's custom to go to the Jew first, because he considered him, his primary mission was to the Jewish community. Now, Paul was, was uh, very well-versed in the Old Testament. And the Jews were also very well-versed in the Old Testament. And so, Paul's approach with the Jewish community was to build on their understanding of the Old Testament. And from there, he would share the gospel with them. Now, folks, this wasn't this hit-and-run, hand-them-a-gospel track and leave. No, he's there for three entire weeks, likely even longer than that. But our passage tells us that for three weeks, once a week, on the Sabbath, he reasoned with them from scriptures. Reasoned with them. And at least ten times in the book of Acts, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, says that Paul's strategy was to reason with people. It says it ten times. Reason with people in his effort to convert them and to build them up. Now, reason is, is, is an interesting word. In the original, the word reason sounds a lot like our word dialogue. Dialogue. You see, Paul didn't just stand up and preach as I'm doing here. He dialogued with them back and forth with these Jews. And I wonder, is that a lesson for us? I think so. In situations where we may find ourselves in, where there's an open door to share our faith, listen, we don't have to get preachy. Let's have a conversation. Some of us struggle just to have a conversation. No, don't see this as, a, as an opportunity to kind of back up the truck and, and dump the whole load. Paul sat in the synagogue opened up the Old Testament scriptures and dialogued with them as to how Jesus Christ fits the profile of the Old Testament Messiah. For it says that Paul reasoned with them, note this, from the scriptures. He wasn't just giving them his opinion. He was explaining and proving it. It says there in uh, verse 5, that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul explained it as clearly as he could the gospel. Again, another lesson for us. When we share the gospel, we should make it unmistakably clear. We don't have to complicate it. We don't have to use all these big words. Is it clear in your mind of the gospel if someone said, can you share that with me? You could do it. Paul reasons from the scriptures. He began with what they had, the Old Testament. That's all they had this time. 
See, we need to meet people where they're at, not where we'd like them to be. And so he uses the Old Testament because that's where they're at. And, and we don't know because it doesn't tell us the Old Testament passages he used. So it's really speculative now. But he might have. He might have reached all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve decided they, they didn't want to follow God's instructions. So they went out on their own. They were disobedient. And the results of that choice marked all people from that point forward as sinners. And the wages of all sin is death. Eternal separation from God, Paul would write later in Romans. So maybe he used Genesis 3. He, perhaps he, he, he referred to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, there's a description there of the crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion was even a thing. Even uses the method of execution. It would seem likely, at least to me, that Paul would have reasoned with them from portions uh, from the book of Isaiah, especially Isaiah chapter 53, which tells uh, that this Messiah was despised and forsaken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Paul would explain that, that it was necessary for this Messiah, this Jesus, to die and rise from the dead so that we don't have to spend eternity apart from God because this Jesus, this Messiah, paid the penalty for our sins. But you see, Paul here, he's presenting the evidence from the Old Testament that the Messiah is, of the Old Testament is Jesus. Now I wonder, if you only had the Old Testament, could you share how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? Paul here provided proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now listen, he either is or he isn't. It can't be this, well, he might be the Messiah for you, but he isn't for me. No, either he is or he isn't. Paul reasons with them. In other words, he encourages them to think. What a novel approach. <laughs> I want you to think on this. And yet much of our preaching today, there's no time for, this is no time for thinking, it's a time for feeling. And reason has fallen on hard times in our day. People have lost their minds. Now, in part, because of the relativism of postmodernism and because of emotionalism and mysticism, yeah, and there's all kinds of other reasons, and I'm not going down that path right now, but the, but the bottom line is, church, we need to think. We need to think over what we hear, whether it's from this pulpit or other people we listen to. We need to think. We need to process what we hear. Don't just go, oh, okay, they said it, it must be true. And we would do well to reason from scriptures. Parents, reason with your children from scriptures. Show them why they should believe certain things. I mean, do it yourself as well, but show them. Because reason is an essential part of Christianity. And unfortunately, unfortunately, and sometimes we haven't helped this as a Christian community, 
But unfortunately, there is this notion that becoming a Christian means you don't think. That our faith is, is some kind of this leap in the dark. It's where we have pivoted away from the rational. Mark Twain's view of faith was that it was believing what you know ain't so. Archie Bunker, there's a blast in the past. He said, faith is believing in something no one in their right mind would believe in. The atheist author, Sam Harris, defined faith as the license religious people give themselves to keep believing when reasons fail. Richard Dawkins should be somewhat familiar He was well known in his day anyway and most vocal about being an atheist and in his book, God Delusion, Dawkins says that Christian faith is non-thinking. And he claims and he says this, I believe it's on your screen, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. No, church, these are faulty views of faith. Biblical faith is not blind. It's not the act of believing without a reason. Just the opposite. Biblical faith is the act of believing in something unseen for which we do have a good reason. For example, when we believe that God will keep a promise, this constitutes faith because we cannot see it yet, but we have a good reason for it. What's the reason? God has demonstrated that he keeps his promises. If all that is written in the Old Testament about this Jesus came true hundreds of years later. He is a God who can be trusted. One preacher illustrates it this way. He says, suppose you meet a man on the street whom you do not recognize. And for some reason, he gives you a bag with $50,000 in cash. And he asks you to deposit in the bank for him. He says that his account number is even in the bag. You're surprised because you don't know this man at all. And so you ask, why do you trust me with this cash? And he says, no reason, I'm just taking a risk. This shows this man is a fool. But suppose he, had, he came out and said, yeah, I, don't know, I know you don't know me, but I work in the same building as you do, and I've watched you for the last year or so. I've seen your integrity in dozen ways. I've spoken to people who know you. And the reason I'm trusting you with this money is that I have good reason to believe you're honest and reliable. What's the effect of that faith? Well, it's based on real evidence that you are honorable. Church, we have a reasonable, justified faith. Our faith is based on persuasive evidence that God does exist. Faith is not in conflict with reason. Biblical faith and biblical reasoning actually work well together. Yes, there's to be faith. Hebrews 11.1, sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. That is true. But we have a good reason to believe. John Piper said it this way, this ground of faith is a reasonable ground and the conviction that flows from it is a reasonable conviction. It goes beyond what mere reasoning upon the facts can produce, but it is itself reasonable. Alan Rex Sandage, he was ranked at one time as the world's most accomplished astronomer. 
He spent his career quantifying the expanse of the universe, finding uh, quasars and, and solar systems, looking at what can be seen through the most powerful telescopes on our planet. When he was about 60 years old, he spoke at a conference in Dallas, Texas on science and faith. Everyone thought they knew which side of the argument he was going to be on because Sandage was known to be an atheist. But in a talk on the Big Bang Theory, Sandage said that at 50 years of age, he had come to believe in God and had since become a Christian. Now, this produced a big bang across the auditorium. And when Sanders was asked, can a person be a scientist and a Christian? He replied, yes, absolutely. As I said before, the world is too complicated in all its parts and interconnections to be due to chance alone. One of the world's most influential is astronomer. A scientist who spent most of his life studying the vast expanse of the universe concluded that there had to be a divine creator. We have a reasoning faith. Now that isn't to say there isn't some mystery to it, because there is. That isn't to say that we will always understand the reason for everything. That is not to say that evidence has to be given before you take your next step. It's not saying that. This is where faith comes in. We do have to walk by faith, not by sight. But as C.S. Lewis put it, faith is the art of holding on to what our reason has once accepted in spite of our changing moods. Don't swerve off the road when you have these feelings of doubts that start sneaking in. Don't swerve off the road then. That's no time to go back to this is what I accepted as being true. This is the evidence. Right now I don't understand it. But this is true. I'm trusting in God. That's what we have to do. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way. My faith is to rest not in the outcome which I think God should work out for me. My faith rests in who God is. The quietness of my heart is in the fruit of an absolute confidence in God. Then she says, faith is not inferred from the happy way things work. It's an act of will, a choice based on the unbreakable word of God who cannot lie, who showed us what love and obedience and sacrifice mean in the person of Jesus Christ. And you may be here this morning. I appreciate what Dan said earlier about blessing and giving praise and worship to God when things aren't going well. Because you may be right there today. You may be at this, at this crossroad, maybe even a, a crisis of faith. There's, there's something in your life that you've got to trust God for, though you can't see with your eyes how it's going to work out. What do you do then? Bank on what you know about God. That is, is unbreakable word of God who cannot lie. That's where you have to stand in those times. All right, he reasoned with them. I told you, most of my time was on that point. He establishes them now. He establishes the church. Aren't you glad I told you this up front? You can relax. Verse 4. Verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So we see that some were persuaded by the evidence. We have some Jews. We have some religious guys, God-fearing Greeks, where Paul's message kind of clicked and, and they believed. And interestingly, it, it mentions that there are also some women that believed the message. 
These, I believe, were leading women from the upper class, women who were very influential in the synagogue and the streets of Thessalonica. But it's with this handful of people that the church in Thessalonica is established. This church was born out of Paul's ability to persuade them with the truth. Some of the Jews were persuaded. His words were very convincing. Reminds me of a, a story of a man who stopped by the local general store to pick up a jar of pickles. And as he was looking around the store for this jar of pickles, he noticed the shelves were loaded with bags and bags and bags of salt. And so he couldn't find the jar of pickles among all the bags of salt, and he asked the store owner about the pickles, and the store owner said, well, I need to go down to the basement to find it. And so this man follows the store owner all the way downstairs, and, and to his surprise, it were still more bags of salt. Everywhere he looked, he could see bags and bags of salt. I see, you must sell a lot of salt in this store, the man asked the store owner. No, the store owner replied sourly, I can't sell any salt, but the guy who sells me salt, boy, can he sell salt. <laughs> persuasive. Paul was persuasive. The word persuaded means to prevail upon or win over, to bring about a change of mind by the influence of reason or moral considerations. Paul was persuasive, but it's worth noting that just because we're persuasive and just because we can put a good and clear argument together doesn't mean that people will respond favorably. And I can think of one time in particular, perhaps there are others, but this one time stands out to me. And I was in Portland and I, and I shared the gospel to someone who was off the charts in intelligence. I delivered what I thought was a slam dunk God clearly gave me the words to speak because I'm just not that intelligent. He gave me the words to speak, and this guy, was, he was tracking with me. His head was nodding. And I said, does this make sense at the end? And he said, yes, it does. Perfect sense. Now I'm thinking, what a moment. I'm going to lead this guy to Christ. I asked him, okay, are you ready then to receive Jesus as your Savior by putting your trust in what he's done for you? And he answered, nope, not ready for that. And I went, What? You see, we can reason with someone. We can communicate as clearly as possible. We can go slam dunk. We can be persuasive by showing them even from scriptures who this Jesus is. But at the end of the day, it is an exercise of the will. A choice must be made. Because persuasion is not a matter of battering people into submission. It's not about coercion or manipulation. Faith does not come by might, but by choice. God will persuade, but never coerce you. You see, you won't see Jesus if you don't want to see Jesus. You won't. The person you're talking to won't if they don't want to. It may not be because, because you or they deny the evidence. It may be because they really don't want to submit to him. The will. Now imagine you're standing at the edge of Niagara Falls 
And imagine that while you're standing there watching this magnificent waterfall, you notice there's a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. He really was a tightrope walker. He would go from side, one side to the next on this tightrope. He'd do it on stilts, I read. And, and even one time he did it carrying a man on his back. I think he cooked an omelet or something in the middle too. You can read about it. But now imagine, and I don't know if this part's true, but I want you to imagine it. He's walking from one side to the other and he's pushing a wheelbarrow full of rocks. You're mesmerized by his amazing ability. You keep watching him doing it over and over and over again. He then sees you and he walks over and he says, Hey, do you have faith that I can do that again with this wheelbarrow full of rocks? And you go, of course I have faith you can do it again. I've seen you do it all day. And then he dumps all the rocks out and he says, Okay, climb in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> And you go, well, I'm not so sure about that. You getting in? See, what we're talking about here is not mere intellectual assent. You believe based on evidence, but stepping into the wheelbarrow, that's active trust, right? After assessing what Christ has done and is doing, we respond by putting our trust in him. Biblical faith is active trust based on evidence, but it requires our will. And you may be at that place this morning where your life's just disturbed right now. Things inside are just kind of all disruptive. You know, what's going on here? Well, maybe that's God trying to persuade you. He wants you to trust him, but he won't force you. You must make a choice. Paul persuaded some. Not everyone appreciated what Paul had to say, right? Verse 5 tells us there were some Jews, some Jews there who were jealous. And it says that so they rounded up, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Now, the NIV translates and calls these people standing around the market. Like he calls them bad characters. King James translates this way, translates it this way. Some lewd fellows of the baser sort. Others have translated bad characters as, as lowlifes, rabble, thugs. But the word basically means useless or worthless. And not only are they worthless and useless, they are also evil. They're just hanging around. They're looking for some excitement. And so when these officials come along and say, hey, let's start a riot, they're all over it. And as we think about what we have lived through over the last couple of years, I think we can relate. Let's start a riot. There's people just ready to jump in. These bunch of lazy loafers here go all the way to Jason's house where they heard Paul and Silas were there. And it says in verse 6, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting. They're actually screaming this. They're so angry because they're so jealous. And so they scream. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. They had turned the world upside down. That was, a, that was a true statement. But the Jews meant it in a very negative way. Their view is that things were going well in their city 
until Paul and his team came in and caused all this trouble. You see, they, they, they viewed the world as a turtle on its feet with Paul and Silas trying to push the turtle over on its back. But the right view of the world is that it's like the turtle stuck on its back, unable to right itself. It's in trouble. It needs to be turned over. The turning the world upside down upon Silas is absolutely necessary. It's actually turning things right side up. Men are dying in their sins, but now a Savior has come to turn them over back onto their feet. Now, of course, these rioters and officials, they didn't see it that way. Their jealousy blinded them to the truth. They could not see this Jesus they spoke about because they did not want to see him. And they didn't want this riot to continue either, and you can read the rest of it, but they strike a deal with Jason and his brothers. He said, they basically say, you guys put up this bond. If you give us some money, we're going to let you go free. But the other part of this agreement would be that they promised not to cause any more trouble. So Jason puts up the bond, and Jason and his brothers uh, are released. And meanwhile, Paul and his team slip away to Berea. You can read further along now. And, and they go there to share the gospel. They're determined to share the gospel no matter the consequences. But it's all in this upheaval, turmoil, and persecution that the church in Thessalonica was established. It was a church under fire. And that introduces us to the first letter to the Thessalonians, which we are going to pick up next week. He writes to them, reasons with them, establishes them, the church, and then he writes to them. And 1 Thessalonians, as we're going to get into next week, is one of Paul's earliest Letters, likely the second book that was written after Galatians, likely. But the impetus for Paul writing to them was really to check in on them. They were a young church. He had to leave so abruptly that he's concerned about how this young church was doing. Are they making it? And so, he, so Paul sends Timothy to go check in on the church. And so Timothy, he's sent off. He goes and checks in on the church. He returns to Paul and he gives an update of the church. And then in response to that report uh, from Timothy, Paul writes to them, and that's what we have in the letter to the first Thessalonians. He's concerned about them. So he writes to them after he hears this report. No, no, no. Maybe there's someone you're, you're deeply concerned about right now. And you're going, well, I'm just going to keep being concerned about them. Maybe you just drop them a little note. Maybe it's time to write to them. Oh, it's kind of lost art. Text them. <laughs> Email them. Say, let's get together for coffee. I'm concerned about you. That's what Paul is doing. I'm concerned. I'm going to write you this letter. Now, Timothy's assessment of the church is mostly positive. Their vital signs were good. It's a church that's showing uh, remarkable signs of life. And so... As we jump into 1 Thessalonians beginning next week, carry us through several months, it's a great opportunity for us to check our vital signs at Living Hope. How are we doing as a church? And since the church is comprised of individuals and can't be any healthier than the people in it, it's a call for each of us to check our spiritual vital signs. How are your vital signs? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing? Are you staking your life on the historic person of Jesus who claimed to be God 
and said in no uncertain terms that he's the only way to God and to eternal life. Church, it is reasonable to believe in this Jesus. Now, this is not, as I'm causing you to ask you to think, this is not this thing that's happening today that many are calling uh, deconstructing. They're deconstructing their faith. These are some some well-known leaders that are deconstructing their faith. And you know what they're doing? I'm I'm not going to go too far with this because this is a sermon in and of itself. But what they're doing in this deconstruction, it has little to do with objective truth. It has everything to do with tearing down any teaching that disagrees with me morally. I can't believe that Christian is going to believe that. I'm deconstructing my faith. Nonsense. Nonsense. Yes, be thinkers on the objective truth. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean it ain't so. Now, having said this about this morning, we have a reasonable faith. That does not suggest, that does not mean we will never have doubts. We will not. I've had doubts. Doubts and unbelief are not the same. The issue is, when you have doubts, where do you go with that? Does it lead you to the Lord, searching the Scriptures, or does it lead you away from Him? Back in the 40s, there were two evangelists who were promising individuals to turn the world upside down. One was Charles Templeton, that most of you probably never heard of, but the other was Billy Graham probably heard of him. Templeton, when they first started out, he was seen really as the more gifted speaker of the two. And in many ways, in the front end, he overshadowed Billy Graham. Over time, though, Templeton could no longer accept many of the basic teachings of the Christian faith, despite his longing for a personal relationship with God. So Templeton, he succumbed to the lure of intellectual superiority and even caused Billy Graham to question his faith. For the first time since his conversion, Billy Graham was questioning the truth and dependability of the Scriptures. It was, it was a true crisis of faith. Billy Graham was, was racked with doubt. What did it do? It drove Billy Graham to do an intensive study, soaking in the writings of the theologians and scholars, as well as just soaking in the Bible from from, from beginning to end. And he finally, he dropped to his knees in prayer and decided the Bible was God's inspired, inerrant, dependable word and he was going to accept every word of it by faith. Templeton's doubts, however, about everything he stood for became too great and it led him to finally abandon his faith. Templeton later wrote a critique of the Christian faith titled, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Now, Lee Strobel, who at one time was atheist before he became a Christian, he interviewed Templeton at the age of 83, nearing the end of his life. And during the course of their conversation, Charles Templeton vigorously defended his denial of God and his rejection of the Bible. There was no chink in the armor of his callous soul. Strobel then directed the aging Templeton's attention to Jesus and asked him how would he assess Jesus at this stage in his life. 
And he said, Templeton's body language softened. His voice took on this melancholy and reflective tone. And then Templeton incredibly said, Jesus, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever counted in my life or in my reading. And Strobel commented, you sound like you care about him. And he said, yes, everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. And then Templeton's voice began to crack. And then he said, I, I miss him. And with that, Templeton just burst into tears. With shaking frame, he wept bitterly. He gained control of his emotions and said, enough, enough. And he refused to say any more. How sad is that? Very sad indeed. You see, Jesus cannot be so easily dismissed from our minds. Jesus is still the most engaging figure of human history. He is either who he said he is or he isn't. It is one or the other. It's not good for you, not me. Nope. He is or he isn't. Comes down to it. What are you going to do with Jesus? And do your doubts that you may have, do they drive you to him or further away? Let's pray. God help us. Just kind of process all of this. There's a lot here. And a lot to think about. And I pray, God, in those moments of doubts, and we, I say, we, we all have them, that we anchor our belief, we anchor our thoughts on you and your word and what we know to be true. And may any doubts we have drive us towards you, not away from you. For you, Jesus Christ, is our cornerstone. Put all of our hope and trust in you. For you are who you say you are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.